I said un momento like uh, people should understand what that means. It's what I imagine Italian for one moment is, but I don't actually know. Um, look, we're, we're continuing on in Malachi today, and before we get into it, uh, let me pray for us as we come to God's word. Jesus, thank you that you are here with us and that you speak to your people. Thank you, Lord, for that glorious truth that we just heard, that the gospel is not the garden, uh, not the, is the garden, not the gate. The good news of Jesus is the good news that we live in. Lead us to live in it today. Lord, as we look at the hope of the coming of the Christ and the hope of your return, we pray that you would be, lead us to be a people who live in hope, who live in the knowledge that even now you have come to us and you walk with us. Lead us to be a people who live out the gospel joyfully, knowing that our great treasure is in Christ. We pray it in Jesus' beautiful name. Amen. Look, I don't want to degrade my own sermon at all, um, but if you take one message out of here today, and that message is the gospel is the good news that we are called to live in, then let that be it. That is such good news. Um, there's the, our treasure is Christ. We don't move on from that. We never grow out of that. He is everything we need. Uh, isn't that wonderful? Um, yeah, look, we're in um, week three of our series in the book of Malachi, this little prophet. Uh, three out of four, uh, incidentally. If you don't have a Bible open, I invite you to open it as I do. Uh, but um, this week... And next week, uh, what had been implied in the first half of this little prophetic book becomes explicit. The Lord will come, Malachi says. In fact, if you were to summarize the point of this whole passage, it would be simply to tell God's people, the Lord will come to you, believe it. And what's interesting is the way that they get there, um, and maybe, maybe this is relatable for many of us, you see, the Israelites have uh, what I would call a beef with God. They've got an argument with God, if you want a more general term. Malachi says, you have wearied the Lord with your words. And they say, how have we wearied him? Right? And he says, because you say, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. And you say, where is the God of justice? Do you see what their beef is? Like, they're not actually saying that evil people are good. What they're saying is that their accusation against God is something that maybe, maybe is relatable to us. They're looking around at the world around them and they see themselves as the, the faithful remnant who still worship God. Sure, deformed offerings and whatnot, but at least they worship, right? Uh, and the, the way they see it is that God is blessing those who are far from him more than he blesses those who are near to him. I mean, they were an oppressed, downtrodden, as, as we've seen already in the previous weeks of this, right? They were a downtrodden people under the thumb of a bigger, more impressive, more important nation, a bunch of them, in fact, nations that worshipped false gods, Nations that neither sacrificed to the true God nor kept his moral laws. Uh, and, yet, and yet these nations, they seem to prosper. 
So they, so they say, accusingly, God delights in evildoers. Where is the God of justice? Where are you, God? Is that sometimes relatable to you? Are there days when you look around at the people of the world around you and you think, they have more money than me. They have more friends than me. They have a nicer car than me. They have a nicer house than me. They have a nicer tractor than me. They have a nicer computer than me. God, how is this just? How, how are you blessing your chosen people? Maybe, maybe it's more than that. Like, you know, that, this, that's kind of the superficial level, right? And I think, like, many of us would struggle there. Yeah, but I have a friend um, who I haven't seen in forever, incidentally. He, I think he lives in Melbourne these days. But he's a, he's a faithful follower of Jesus. And in his, his late 40s, early 50s, he got diagnosed with a serious form of cancer. And uh, I remember talking to him about it around that time and, and him just reflecting on the fact that he worked in a workplace full of people who were chain smokers and heavy drinkers. <laughs> and, and here is him, the, the straight-laced, kind of quiet, God-trusting, never-smoked-a-cigarette-in-his-life guy, the, the Christian, uh, and, and, and he's the one who gets the cancer young. Perhaps you relate. Perhaps, perhaps you've had days where you just wonder what God is doing. Where is the God of justice in my life? Well, God's answer to them is not actually too different to what it is for us. The Lord will come. And we could say, the Lord will come and come again. God responds. He responds here in, in these verses. He says, I am sending my messenger to prepare the way before me. Uh, now, that, those words specifically get picked up in the New Testament and applied to John the Baptist. John the Baptist is the messenger who comes and prepares the way before the Lord. But, but then the next words are the heavy ones, right? And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Imagine, imagine you're the Israelites, right? How gobsmacked you might have been at this particular moment. I mean, when you said, where is the God of justice? You probably weren't expecting the answer. He's on his way. Come into the temple. Get ready. But, but, but that is what he's saying. And notice, he gives that detail about John the Baptist to make it clear. This isn't just some random thing. This isn't God responding just to their cries in kind of a, oh gosh, well, I better do something about that sort of way. This is a plan. A plan laid since the beginning. The God of justice will come down. But if the fact that he was coming might have surprised them, then the next words would have made them terribly nervous, I think. But who can endure the day of his coming? You want the God of justice? The God of justice is going to come. But have you considered what justice means for you? He tells us what he's, what he's going to come and he's going to do. He's going to purify his priests, and he's going to bring judgment. Those are the, the two categories that, that Malachi gives us. When he comes, he's going to make a priesthood for himself. 
That's what it means when he says, he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. And this is what we find in the New Testament, that this comes up heavily in First Peter, right? Which, which we mentioned earlier in the series. But the, the other uh, amazing place that we see this fulfilled is in the book of Revelation. Revelation 4 and 5, we get this vision of God reigning over all of creation. It's this curtains pulled back moment of how things really are. At the center of the vision, at the center of creation, there is a throne. It's the throne of God. And at the center of the throne of God, there is a lamb who has been slain. And there's 24 elders who are representing all of God's people throughout all of time. And, uh, and they, they, uh, they sing a song to the lamb. They say, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. That is, worthy are you to unfurl the plan of God to judge and to save. We'll dig into Revelation another time. But for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God. And they shall reign on the earth. Jesus came to make from every nation a priesthood. He came to make you a priest. Don't worry, no robes attached. A priest, as we've talked already about this, right, is, is one who has access to God and leads others to worship him rightly. And that's what Jesus came to make you. But, but not just that. He comes to make priests, and that's, that's amazing news. Like, like, Jesus didn't call you into his kingdom. If you're a follower of Jesus, Jesus didn't call you into his kingdom in order that you might sit and wait for heaven to happen. He called you in to make you a priest and send you out. To make you one who leads others to worship his name rightly. To make you one who has full access into his very presence and leads others into full access into his very presence through Jesus Christ our Lord. But it's not just that, he comes to judge. And this is where we find a tension here, right? Because Jesus said that he didn't come to condemn the world, he came in order to save the world, right? John chapter 3. He came to save. He came to call people from every place to faith in him and to rescue them through his saving work on the cross. And we begin to see that, that Malachi is seeing, Malachi is describing this almost like it's one thing, and yet he's seeing two horizons beyond him. He's seeing that Jesus will come and that he will come again, and he's seeing them almost like it's one thing. He came to refine the priesthood, priesthood for himself, and he will return to judge the earth. This is a serious thing. Sometimes we talk so much about the love and the mercy of Jesus that we miss this. We miss why his love, why his mercy is necessary. His love and mercy demands a response. A day is coming when he will judge justly for sin. And what will separate those who are condemned from those who are, who are not, those who are saved, will not be whether you have done enough good in your life. 
at the second coming of Jesus, the only question that will matter will be how you responded to his first coming. God says, God says in Malachi, I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. God doesn't change so we can know that he will come again. That's certain. There is no question. Because he has said that he will, and he does not change. But God God does not change. So his children are not consumed. So trust in him. Live your life trusting in him. Give your life over to the trust of him every day. It's the only place to be. And so knowing that the Lord is coming, or or for them, knowing that he was going to come, Israel is then called here to return. Return to me, he says, and I will return to you. He gives them some specific ways that that is to work out here in verses 7 to 12, uh, chapter 3. But, but we must say there are a couple of ways in which the call to return applies to us differently than it applies to them. Firstly, and most importantly, on our side of the cross, we read this differently. If you are someone who has believed in Jesus, no matter what you've done, no matter how badly you've messed it up, you know, don't, don't we fall for the, the lie, oh, you've messed it up too bad. You've, you've distanced yourself from God. But no matter how badly you've messed it up, hear this, because of Jesus, you're not distant from God if you've trusted in him. So you're not called to return to him in the same sense. Paul says in Ephesians, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. That position does not change for one who trusts in Jesus. Throughout your whole life, you are at his side. Elsewhere in Ephesians, he says, he has placed us in the heavenly places with him. But nevertheless, even though we are situated after the first coming of Jesus, we're before the second coming. We live in a now but not yet reality. So there is still a sense in which this applies to us. Having been reconciled to God, having been justified, having been adopted, having been brought near into the family of God, we are freed to spend our lives not returning but turning to God turning away from the world and turning to him. Giving ourselves more and more to him and experiencing the flourishing that comes with living in relationship with him. You know, you know one thing God says here, like we saw, is I, the Lord, do not change. Right? And, and one thing that means is that God doesn't need you. If he's unchanging, nothing you can give will add to him. The Bible describes him in this way. He he doesn't, he has everything beyond what our understanding of everything could even be. We saw this a bit last week, didn't we? God doesn't need you. 
He didn't need the sacrifices that he called for from Israel. The Bible says he owns the cattle on a thousand hills, meaning everything is his. He doesn't need you. He doesn't need us to step closer in relationship with him. I know we're kind of going over the same ground here. It's such good ground. It's such important ground. It's such ground that we struggle to believe sometimes. He doesn't need us to step closer in relationship with him. He doesn't need you to read his word. He doesn't need you to pray. He doesn't need you to live the way he calls you to. He doesn't need you to say no to sin and to follow him. He doesn't need you. He doesn't need you to trust in Jesus and be saved. He calls you to turn to him, not because he needs you, but because you need him. And he loves you. He loves you enough to provide what you need. All of these things, the prayer, the Bible reading, the turning and being saved, like all of this is not him needily needing something from you, but him providing for your every need. We flourish when we are in relationship with him. Don't we struggle to believe that? Don't we daily face the temptation to think that if I just had insert thing here, then I would have a perfect, a good, a happy, a joyful life. And yet God says, no, no, come to me, weary, heavy laden. Find your rest. We have hope or peace, meaning, a future, salvation, from condemnation, a joy that is complete, but and these things out of the overflow of his completeness. He doesn't need you. He calls you to respond by turning to him because he is generous. If you've never believed in Jesus, let this be a call for you to come to God and to be saved, to experience the generous God who gives what you need in Jesus. Recognize that there is a God who created everything and he created you and he needs nothing from you. He calls you to give yourself to relationship with him because the things you had been giving yourself to, they don't satisfy, they drain the life out of you, don't they? Isn't that our experience? But when you're in relationship with your creator God, you're alive truly. With him, you are where you were created to be. You're sitting under his blessings. But for those of us who have believed that the call here to return, like I said, it's not a call to come back from being distant. We have been positioned with God and we will not be taken away. But to live out the nearness that you have with God. And actually, God gives some specific applications here. Uh, but, but this is where we see the second reason that this applies a bit differently to us than to them. We are not under the same covenant that they sat in. We are not under the Sinai covenant, the Mosaic covenant, the one, you know, fire, mountain, tablets of stone. Not, not <laughs> tablets. We are in a new covenant in Christ. So once again, there is a sense in which we can take wisdom. We can take principles from these specific commands that God gives Israel, but we must recognize that it is different for us because we are under a new covenant. Here's what I mean. God says to them here, he says, bring in the full tithe and I will bless you. I'm summarizing. 
If you don't know, in the Old Testament, God's people were commanded to give a tithe. That means 10% of their produce, 10% of what they had, they brought back to him. 10% of what they had been given by him was returned to him. Not because he needed it, once again, but because they were to practice relationship with him and experience his abundant blessings as a result. That's why he says, put me to the test. He's saying, test out my covenant that I made with you. It still stands. If you're faithful in it, I will be faithful in it because those are the terms of the covenant that we set up. Now, perhaps there's still a part of us that hears that and just thinks, yeah, no, nah, he's just trying to get their money, right? You know, someone who says, give me 10%, not because, not because, not because I need it, because you need to do that. We're, we're very used to the scam pledge, I think. Um, there are many churches that have not helped us in this regard. I love the way that, that there's a, someone I was reading on this, this last week put it. Um, he points out that everything that they had uh, was given to them by God. It all belonged to God anyway. And then he makes this observation. When Israel was asked to give back a fraction of what was never truly theirs, God responds with everything he has. Look at the promises he makes here. says, put me to the test. See if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. There's actually, like in uh, Second Kings, don't ask me for the specific reference, there's, there's, there's a bit in where, where uh, Samaria is in famine and like everyone's dying and God says, sends a word by a prophet to say that yeah, I, I believe they're besieged at the time. This is what happens when I go off, off the reservation and, and haven't prepared the notes on this, is that I'm doing this from memory. But um, they're besieged, they're suffering, they're dying of famine. And God sends a prophet to say, don't worry. In a few days, there's going to be so much food that it's going to be going cheap. Um, and, and this exact phrase of opening the windows of heaven um, comes up. And, and like within a a week or less, like there's the, the enemy army flees and they go out to the enemy army encampment and look, they left everything and food's dirt cheap. God opens the windows of heaven and provides so much that they don't know what to do with it all. The promises of what he will give, they far outweigh what they are called to give. Now, there are churches where they will teach that the application here is that you must tithe. You must tithe in order to receive God's blessings. And that is the message. Thanks for coming today. It's, no, no. Uh, <laughs> I I'd do a little wake up. Um, no, the tithe is a part of the old covenant, right? Um, the Sinai Covenant. It was a command to them with specific blessings attached to it for them under the Sinai Covenant. The Old Testament law of Israel does not apply to you as it did to them. We know this, right? Because raise your hand if you eat bacon. Right? We, we know that doesn't apply to us. We know that we are not under this covenant, don't we? Likewise, raise your hand if you sacrificed a goat recently. 
Thank heavens. Uh, <laughs> you guys pointing? No, no, that, that's not a sacrifice. That's just lunch. Um, it's not a sacrifice, is it, Deb? Nah, good. Cool. Um, the Old Testament law does not apply to us anymore. And we know that in these obvious examples, right? And yet, and yet sometimes people will go, ah, yes, but, but the tithe... That still applies. Look at, look at, look at this language here in, in Malachi. That's, that's still for us because, because quietly, I want 10% of your money. Um, they don't usually say that. Uh, <laughs> now, now, there are things in the law that carry forward. The morality of the law carries forward. And, and that is made explicit by Jesus who carries it forward and explains the morality of God's people. And there are still principles in all of the law that speak to us today, though not exactly as they did to them. But just as the tithe laws don't apply to us now, the blessings for bringing in the tithe are not a given for us either. There are plenty of people who've been crushed under the weight of, if you just gave enough, God would bless you, and they give and give, and then God and, 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 and the cancer doesn't go away, or the child dies, or the, you know, someone goes off the rails, and, and it's like, what didn't I give, God? And it, that's not a promise that God has made to you for this life. But there is a principle here which absolutely does carry forward into the way that we turn to God. We turn to God, one of the ways we turn to God is in generosity and recognizing and experiencing there that our true blessings are in him, not in the things of this world. So we're not called to give 10% for the temple. Thank goodness, because we don't have one. If we had one, and this was our temple, we would have right reason to be profoundly disappointed. It leaks, by the way. Still. We are called to give 100% for God's glory. Romans 12 says this, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Our worship is no longer an offering of animals and a giving of 10%. It is the giving of ourselves as a living sacrifice of worship, a sacrifice of thankfulness, joyfully given to him because he has already given all to us. I know someone here is wondering still, yeah, but what does it mean for my wallet? <laughs> and, and, and here's the key principle that the New Testament gives us there for money. We get it in, in Luke chapter 16. Jesus says, no servant can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or he will love the one and, be and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. The money you have is given to you by God, just like every single other jolly thing you got, right? Down to the nose on your face. Yes, that too. One person put it this way, if you come to Jesus for money, then he's not your God, money is. If Jesus is your God, then you'll be led in generosity. You will be led to use your money for his purposes because you'll recognize that this money is not your blessing. It's not your hope, it's not your peace, 
No, Jesus is. And you know what's crazy? God does still say that he will bless our generosity today. Though not in the same way. If you've got a Bible, like, like whip it open to, to 2 Corinthians chapter 9. Hopefully you're better at it than me. I've got super skinny pages in this Bible. Should have put a bookmark in, John. 2 Corinthians 9. Verses 6 to 10. And Paul writes this. He says... 6 to 10? fills you with confidence in your pastor when he opens to 1 Corinthians and says 2 Corinthians, doesn't it? You're just like, wow, this guy's a pro. Second Corinthians 9. <laughs> the point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Now, there's some words that have been misapplied sometimes as well, by the way, but let's keep going. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely, he has given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. Now notice that. Notice the words there. God doesn't promise that if you are generous with your money, then he will make you rich or that he will heal your every disease in the here and now. If someone tells you that, if someone tells you that this sickness you have is a result of your lack of generosity, or your lack of faith probably, as exhibited by your lack of generosity, right? And if you just give to my ministry, then the Lord declares you will be healed. Run fast, run far from that ministry. That teacher is selling you a false gospel. There is a day when because you are in Christ, all of your sickness will be healed. Here's some good news for you. The Lord will come and come again. The day is coming when it will be healed. You will be made whole, more whole than the wellest person you've ever met ever has been. You will prosper in a new heavens and a new earth and your greatest joy will be complete because you will be with him face to face. But that's not today. But he does promise a blessing. He says, I will increase the harvest of your righteousness. Now remember, this is another area where we are tempted to think, God's just trying to get something from me, right? But God doesn't need you to be righteous. Think about it. Like if, if, if you were the creator God of the universe, what would you need in someone being righteous? God will bless the increase of your righteousness. He will bless you spiritually in leading you into the way of living which you were created for. Where there is peace. Where there's joy. Even if you're sick. Even if you're poor. There are millions of Christians 
who are dying in poverty. God hasn't forgotten them. He cares for them. He has made a perfect day for them, which is coming, but he is with them even now and blessing them in having him with them, having the peace that surpasses understanding. Let me, let me, let me wrap this up with a challenge. As the people of the God who came and will come again, who trust that and who know that he walks with us even now, have you been treating God like he needs something from you? Have we, have we subtly acted like I'm being generous to God when I get round to serving and following? I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm making him happy because he's so needy, you know? We need to recognize we are the ones in need. And God provides abundantly for us. He provides abundantly for us in his son. Who came, who walks with us now, and who will come again. Would you, would you pray with me? Jesus, thank you that you came down. The Lord of justice did not remain distant and yet you did not just come down and meet out the justice that we deserved. You came down and you carried the justice that we deserved in mercy and grace. You are forming a priesthood for yourself. You are forming a people who carry out the goodness of their God in their lives. And we do that, Lord, as we recognize that you don't need us, but we need you and you generously give to us. Help us, Lord, to know the blessings that are ours in Christ. Help us to walk as a people who know we are blessed in him. We have the very God of the universe in our hearts. Help us, Lord, to put aside Lord, we, we, we confess, we've, we've acted like you need something from us. Help us to walk in the way that you have called us to live because we need you. Help us to live in the gospel, Lord. Help us to walk knowing that the risen Jesus walks with us and watches over us and carries us on and pours his resurrection life into us. Lead us to be forever turning to you and giving our lives over to you. We pray it in the beautiful name of Jesus, our Saviour, who gave himself for us. Amen.